the biggest benefits though, by far, are helping keep the joints in proper position. So joint position dictates muscle function. That prep on show 182. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and today's episode is part one of a two-part interview with Menachem Brody. Menachem is one of the leading strength training coaches for cyclists and triathletes as recognized by, for example, a long-standing relationship, working relationship within USA Cycling in educating the USA Cycling coaches since 2011. And another great example of his knowledge is that uh, he was chosen to be the, the creator of uh, Training Peaks University's uh, strength training course, Strength Training for Triathlon Success, which is actually a course that I'm taking at the moment, and it's really, really great. And we'll actually definitely get into a lot of the most important topics from that course during or the course of, of this interview series. So some examples of, of things that we'll get into include just benefits of strength training for triathletes and endurance athletes, because they, they can't be overstated. But that's those are things that I think that you've all heard. So, so I think that you might be more interested in how much strength training should you be doing? We We have a a great discussion around that and of course what should your strength training consist of and we have some specific scenarios and, and practical examples that uh, that will help inform you and, and educate you in, in that area as well then we'll talk about assessments in strength training and that will be in part two i believe of this interview so next week and uh, we'll talk about how to fit in strength training around your swim, bike, and run workouts. Get into some of the nitty-gritty details like ordering, when, which one should you do first, if you have to do uh, two of them in the same day or even consecutively. And the big picture, how do you fit in strength training over the course of an entire year or in a triathlon season? How should it change? Basically, what is the, the periodization structure of strength training? So we'll get into that right after thanking our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. And uh, in one of their most popular blog posts, which is on the importance of sodium for endurance athletes, uh, there is reference to a study from 2015 that found that athletes who adequately replaced sodium uh, that they lost through their sweat, they finished a middle distance triathlon on average 26 minutes faster than those who didn't. So that's uh, just an interesting piece of trivia, not even trivia, but uh, I guess uh, a gateway drug to go and read that blog post and learn about how important sodium is. It is critical, and the longer the race is and the hotter the weather, the more critical it becomes. So take the free online sweat test on precisionhydration.com, and that will give you your individual race hydration strategy give you a ballpark idea of how much sodium you're losing through your sweat and then you can try a box of precision hydration electrolytes for free with the promo code that's triathlon show all on word all caps on precisionhydration.com and a big thanks to roca and uh, once again we're actually approaching the end of this giveaway that runs through uh, the may 26th and uh, roca is giving away a massive amount of prices 
more than $2,000 in prizes, including as the main prize an Ironman race entry anywhere in the world, plus a Maverick X wetsuit, which is the wetsuit that I use, and it's super fast. I can guarantee that. So uh, definitely go and sign up for that giveaway. There are plenty of other prizes as well. Uh, and you can do so on roca.com forward slash TTS. And that's linked to in the episode description and in the show notes as well. But again, it's roca, R-O-K-A.com forward slash TTS as in that triathlon show. And as usual, for any regular orders on roca.com, just use the promo code TTS, all caps, to get 20% off your entire order. Now, without any further ado, let's dive into part one of the interview with Menachem Brody. Welcome to That Triathlon Show, Menachem. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me today. It's uh, a great pleasure. We already spent uh, quite some time discuss- discussing here pre-interview, so uh, I'm getting all excited for our interview now. Same here. There's, there's, like, you, like we were saying, there's so much we can, we can go down, right? There's, there's so many different things to cover here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, this it's been a while since I covered strength training. I have done that in in a few episodes in the past, some interviews and some solo episodes. But it's definitely time for a good refresher here. Before we start talking about that main topic, can you give us a brief introduction of yourself and and what you do? Absolutely. Um, I've been coaching focused uh triathlon and cycling for the last 11 years uh, i started off as a basketball coach and a personal trainer i've been in the sport and performance field for almost 20 years at this point i have a bachelor's degree in exercise physiology with a specialization in coaching so i've known for a very long time that i wanted to be a coach i started coaching at a very young age uh, kids that were younger than me in basketball was very fortunate to have a lot of really great mentors, uh, worked for the University of Pittsburgh men's basketball program, uh, division one in the US. We were number two in the nation, top 10 the whole time I was there and a number of professional players. And really my background is just being a, a nerd and reading and learning and going out and seeking the best information out there, the best approaches and trying to put it together uh, for each athlete I work with. Because as you've mentioned numerous times in the last couple of, uh, podcast on strength training. It's a matter of finding what works for you as an individual athlete. So um, that that's the short of it, to be honest. I mean, I've, I've really, I was an average coach up until about 2009, 2010. Then I had uh, a shoulder surgery. Uh, I had a slap tear in my right shoulder from playing volleyball and basketball in high school. Um, and that happened right as I was training for the nation's triathlon in Washington, DC. So I never made it to that start line. Um, and then I had, uh, when I was cycling, I decided to take it seriously in about 2010. And I discovered that I had femoral acetabular impingement, uh, pretty significant on uh, my left side, um, from my years of playing hockey goalie and riding my bike in a very aggressive position. And that specific injury is when I became, you know, went from being an average, coach uh, or above average coach to where I am today. And that is, you know, going out and researching and and teaching people and and really trying to to lead from the front and share information. Um, So that's a long and short of it. Uh, We can go into details there if you want. There's always a lot of things like competitive powerlifting, all this different stuff, but uh, that's the short version. 
Yeah, we we can stick with the short version, and and we'll of course link to your website and and your social media and everything like that, so that people can can find it and uh, get the long version as well, and and also your podcast, which we talked about briefly. That you're starting your own podcast, so I'm sure that will be a good place to to find out more information. Uh, but let's uh, get into strength training, which uh, you mentioned uh, before as well, is one of the things that, uh, or is the thing that you're mostly focusing on on now, and. Uh, Starting with basically, what are the benefits of strength training for endurance athletes? Oh, how long do we have? <laughs> um, there's so many. I mean, th- and this is the same thing that happens or has happened in every single sport. Uh, in the 1980s, there was a basketball player in the NBA, a rookie. His name was Michael Jordan. Uh, he went on to completely revolutionize the game. And we're seeing kind of the same thing here in in cycling and triathlon and, and running with strength training. Uh, back when Michael Jordan started strength training, he was told that he would get bulky, it would screw up his shot, he wouldn't be able to dribble, and very similar uh, biases and myths that we hear in endurance sports. The biggest benefits, though, by far are helping keep the joints in proper position. So joint position dictates muscle function. And and you're taking the strength training for triathlon success course. So uh, by the time you're done with that, you'll you'll hear, and that will be joint position dictates muscle function. Yeah, I've heard um, it about 20 times by now. And, and I'm <laughs> maybe a third of the way through. <laughs> And, and, you know, that's something that's key is, is repetition, just like in our sport, you know, it's, you know, everybody likes to quote the 10,000 hour rule, but really what it comes down to is focused, purposeful practice is 10,000 hours of focused, purposeful practice and strength training for triathletes serves us a number of, of big, um, pillars. It allows us to keep the joints in the proper, uh, setting. So the position is right. So the muscles can function well, which decreases our risk of developing osteoarthritis, um, meniscus injuries, so to speak, uh, or other joint issues that can happen because muscles are out of balance. It also allows our body to be able to function better uh, and more efficiently. So uh, economy of movement will be better, as well as the fact that when you do proper strength training for triathlon, and I have to stress proper because there's still a lot of bodybuilding approaches out there. When you do properly for your sport, you're working on movements you don't otherwise get in your sport, allowing the body to function better. So you're getting inter and intramuscular coordination, which helps you be a better overall athlete. And this is something so many other sports have figured out millennia before we did uh, as endurance athletes. And really, we're just starting to tap into to seeing what we can really do with proper strength training developed for our sport. Uh, but those would be the big three. So joint position, uh, better inter and intramuscular coordination, as well as uh, balancing out and keeping us from having forced time off due to overuse injuries. So with those, uh, the joint position and how it dictates muscle function, as well as the inter and intramuscular uh, coordination, would those translate into direct performance benefits? benefits and what sort of performance benefits are we talking about if that is the case uh my favorite answer it depends <laughs> uh it really depends on the athlete and that's such a great question michael and that's something a lot of people i, I think miss people like simplicity of one answer and, and usually the, the more I'm, I'm in the coaching game and the more I, people i work with i realize that the simple answer is almost always the best one when we look at, at how we're performing in our sport, what we're able to do when we increase our strength for most beginner triathletes or most beginner strength training triathletes, because, and here's a big difference that we need to, to make sure we're clear on. 
your training age for triathlon may be 12 years because you've been training for 12 years in run, bike, swim, but your training age for strength training is zero because you're just starting, or maybe you've dabbled here and there. So we have to keep that in mind. So when I say a beginner athlete, I mean, it's a beginner strength training athlete. Most of the beginner athletes are going to see huge increases in their abilities only because the organism of the body can now function better. You're now using less of your capacity to hold yourself up in a good posture, to execute your breathing. And that allows more of, of what you're putting out to be able to propel yourself down the road as opposed to prop yourself up, so to speak. And let's be honest, most triathletes, uh, none of us really have great posture because of the time trial bike and the swimming. Um, so once we get ourselves into better positions, it allows us to actually use more of the, the metabolic system as well as the free spring energy, so to speak, uh, that's supplied by the fascial system and the joints being in good position to allow us to kind of spring down the road as opposed to muscle ourselves down the road. Okay. So if we then play devil's advocate for just a little bit, you mentioned bulking up as one of the, the myths, uh, as you called it, for why endurance athletes might not want to do strength training. Are there any other arguments against strength training for endurance athletes? And what, what would they be if that is the case? Good question. So the arguments against using strength training, uh, as you mentioned, is bulking up. Uh, and that comes mostly from the most of the science out there that was available was about bodybuilding. And we're seeing that shift. Uh, going against strength training, the number one thing for triathletes, we have to be honest about it, is time. You know, we're talking about, you know, how many training hours a week do you have? What's your goal event length? Uh, what is your goal in that event? Is it to finish or is it to podium? Uh, or is it to be a top in your age group overall? Um, and the thing is, is that if we were to, to play devil's advocate and really look at the big picture for things, the scenarios, if any, that we would choose not to do strength training would be limited to an illness uh, where you're not recovering, your body has other things and a, an immediate soft tissue or other metabolic disease that's going to keep you because the body needs to be able to focus on that. We, you know, I've worked in postpartum corrective exercise for the last 18 months. Uh, I have a certification in that. And we are now seeing a big shift in that population, that strength training. You know, they say, oh, when you get pregnant, you shouldn't start strength training or, or conditioning because it's, you know, just walk. But actually we're seeing that there's a lot that can happen. We just have to be smart about how we do it. And it is very healthy for the baby. So really th the times or the scenarios that we would choose not to do strength training, you know, just like myself, I had a freak injury. I tore my meniscus and MCL and we think ACL as well, just warming up on AstroTurf for that first week. I took off strength training. Why? Because the body needs to repair the damage that's done. That's the number one thing. But as soon as the, the PT and the doctor gave me clearance to start light strength training, I was right back in the gym. The second you stop strength training is the second you start going backwards. So, you know, that's really it. And, and a lot of us, I think over the next decade, we're still young in this process of, of accepting strength training. So yeah, play devil's advocate. That's fine. But if you're going to say that strength training is going to hurt your results, my number one question will be, what are you doing? How are you spending your time in the gym? And the number two would be, how is your recovery? Are you sleeping enough? Are you eating properly? And usually one of those two things is going to be way off, off point. Whereas when we look at strength training of maybe breaking it down, if you're limited in your time, we can do four or five, 15 to 20 minute strength training sessions a week. The compounding effect of that when it's done right, is going to help you see results over the course of time. Um, so those would be the, the three big things to look at is, you know, 
Are you injured? Do you have some type of, of illness that's keeping you? And are you managing your time and recovery well? Uh, if you're doing, you know, the last one, the first two are really the only reason that you should take off. And even then it's a, a limited time. Mm. So let's dig into that time factor a little bit uh, deeper and give some scenarios or examples perhaps for how the typical time crunched age grouper might be using strength training. Uh, let's say that that we're talking about people that their their goal here is to uh, is to improve the triathlon performance. That that is the the ultimate objective, and they have a specific time budget. And let's say we're dealing with two athletes: one has six hours per week to train, and the other one has twelve hours per week to train. Uh, so, how would you fit in strength training for those two different athletes? This is where we we have to we have to say it depends. So let's let's come up with a little bit more of a specific uh, avatar, if you will. The six hour per week athlete. Uh, what is their target distance and what's their training age for run bike swim? Well, let's say intermediate level, and they target an Olympic distance event. Okay, and within that Olympic distance, what are they looking for to finish? Uh, podium, PR. So, P- yeah, PR. Let, let, let's call them an, an intermediate level, forty-year-old uh, uh, male, and uh, yeah, they're looking to maybe go sub two thirty or something like that. Does that sound good? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, do they have a sedentary job or an active job? Uh, sedentary. Okay. And do they have any kids? Yeah. Okay. Um, teenage or children? Children. Okay. And do they have a spouse at home or someone to help with the children? Uh, well, that's perhaps the 12 hour per week athlete. Let's, let's say that's 12 hour per week athlete is the, is the spouse. Okay. So, so that's uh yeah, so that's a female and and she's also targeting an Olympic uh, but targeting uh perhaps podiuming in her age group at nationals. Okay. Now here's the fun part. Is she age group nationals in the US or Europe? Uh let's, let's take a slightly smaller country than the and slightly less competitive country than the US. Let's say Portugal. Okay. All right. So these are the important questions we have to ask. Um, now here's where we're going to get a little bit into the weeds. Cause I do want to mention this. It is important. Uh, the female athlete, how old is she? She's also 40. Okay. And does she have a history of prolapse or, um, diastasis after having her kids? I have no idea. <laughs> okay. So we'll go with no, yeah. uh, C-section or, or vaginal delivery, a vaginal delivery. Okay. These are important questions that a lot of female athletes don't ask. And these are, these are really important. Um, and then lastly for her, uh, pre-menopause, or is she starting to kind of go through that at this point? Pre. Okay. All right. So you can see how detailed it is. Like we really have to get a good snapshot. Um, and with her, is she working a sedentary job or an active job? Sedentary. Okay. So this is going to be very different. So one is a male, one is a female. So the first thing we're going to talk about is we're going to focus on the female 12 hours. So she's looking for an Olympic distance uh, podium age group. She works a sedentary job. Uh, she's had a number of kids, uh, vaginal delivery, no diastasis, no prolapse, no cesarean section. Um, she also has a lot of different things going on with that 12 hours in the week. We have to consider premenopause. We have to look at where in her cycle she is each month. The first two weeks are called the luteal phase, where women are most like men. So this is from the day that the period starts until halfway through their period, which we'll say on average is 28 days. So day one to day 14, she can train similar to men, fuel similar as men. But when it comes to day 15 to 28, the follicular phase, 
her hormones are going to change. So we would actually look to change her strength training a little bit during that, that cycle as well. So what I found for most athletes in that, you know, 35 to 45 year old premenopause, a couple children at home, uh, no diastasis, no prolapse, and a partner that can work with them is of those 12 hours, we'd want to look between three and five hours during base, between three and four hours during build. And then it varies. I mean, it's so individual beyond, you know, build. When we get towards build two and taper, some people it's an hour and a half a week. So three 30 minute sessions. And I have two athletes that are uh, twice a week at 45 minutes, but heavy. And that's it. Within the, the cycle itself, the strength training we generally like to do in the morning because they're in a little bit more of a catabolic state. So we can get a little bit of BCAA. Uh, we can supplement a little bit, uh, also using something like Osmo or Scratch to help bring up their blood plasma volume uh, during the morning. So during the day, they're hydrating and then they'll have their endurance stuff in the evening. So that would be a specific look at the female. So three to five hours during base, three to four hours during build one, and then build two and beyond. It really depends. For the male, four-year-old, sub-two-and-a-half-hour Olympic distance intermediate athlete um, with children working a sedentary job, I would look for him probably four days a week at 30 minutes, as consistent as possible through build and base one. And then when we get into build two, twice a week for an hour, uh, I know that's a lot out of the six-hour, but twice a week for an hour for the first half of build two doing heavy lifts with lots of rest in between. And Michael, this is where you and I might branch and go down a rabbit hole a little bit, but this would be contingent upon him having uh, done the inside testing because then we can start to dabble a little bit with the strength training. And this is something I'm, I'm starting to work on a little bit to try and figure out how do we match your metabolic profile with what we're doing in the strength training room? Do we want to do heavy weights, sets of two to three, and kind of stay out of that that glycolytic energy system, or do we want to do lighter weight, higher reps, more explosively, uh, and get you a little bit more of that? You know, wh what's your VLA? So there's a lot of different considerations, but those would be the primary take homes. So the average listener out there, if you have 12 hours a week to train for your triathlon uh, and you're doing Olympic distance podiuming, we'd want to spend about one third to one quarter of that in the weight room within reason we'd want to cycle through with the other hours out in your sport we'd want to work on the bike that's my big baseline is the bike it's the longest portion of our races and then we would work on running technique and making you a spring as much as possible so technique work uh, more of the brad hudson approach kind of is where i fall where we're doing more intensity uh, with a couple longer runs sprinkled in there uh, to help you get there whereas when you have less time per week we want smaller more pointed sessions so this may mean that the female uh, partner is going to the gym and lifting heavy things whereas the male may be at home with the more kettlebell and uh, band-based uh, exercise session for strength. Okay, this is a great starting point. And uh, for a lot of the follow-up questions, we can use this couple as, uh, as our examples to, to make things specific. Uh, first of all, my first reaction is that, wow, that's a lot of strength training like in proportion to the amount of total training that they're doing. So, uh, so you, you'll have a, a bit of a job here on your hands to convince me that this is uh, really the optimal use of time when when they're focusing on on maximizing their their triathlon performance. Yes. So this is where we'll go down the rabbit hole a little bit. Essentially, I'm t I'm making a, a, a guess. So those you shouldn't guess, you should assess. Uh, and this is something we'll get into a little bit later, I'm sure. Um, I'm taking a guess as to most uh, uh, most triathletes at the intermediate level 
are going to have had some type of overuse injury. Most commonly, it's something like shin splints or knee, like jumper's knee, or they're going to have a, a shoulder problem because of the number of miles are out there. So I'm shooting down the middle here, looking at most of the people I've worked with and saying, okay, 40-year-old, this means that at that point in your life, the poor habits, poor posture, poor movement patterns that you've been working on for the last 40 years of your life there's a higher likelihood of developing an overuse injury or having something majorly out of balance. That means the strength training needs to be very dialed in. We need to move heavy things. Usually it's going to be a pole, a hinge, uh, and a, a, some type of modified press and working on breathing patterns, getting you good diaphragmatic breathing, 360 breathing. This is going to take us rep repetition throughout the week. For the 12-hour-a-week female at that age, there's a number of factors I'm considering. And when you said about the same age, premenstrual, uh, pre excuse me, not premenstrual, <laughs> um, uh, premenopause, sorry, need coffee. Premenstrual at least, uh, I guess, 12, 12 yes. times per year. <laughs> um, premenopausal, um, there's a, a number of things. When you get past menopause, it's going to be harder to build muscle mass. That's why I went to that three to four hours for that athlete, because we're looking at a, a, a monumental shift in hormones in the body. So we have only so much time. And there's a number of research articles coming out saying that uh, adding strength training and getting stronger will help you live longer. So at around the age of 40 for a female, we have, let's say between five and seven years that we can actually program for increase in lean muscle mass. So that means we need to prioritize the strength training in order to help that triathlete or that human being be able to function better for the rest of their lives. Only because when that, that hormonal shift happens, we are now really fighting an uphill battle. Uh, for the male, it's the same thing. So, you know, we had a couple years ago, uh, what was it? Uh, adrenaline, um, low T. You know, a lot of that, when you do strength training, also the age of 40, 35, 40, that's when that transition happens. We tend to see a drop off in testosterone pr production. So by doing strength training, consistency, consistency is the key here, consistently throughout the week. The female, I'd want to push a little bit more because we have a shorter time frame. For the male, more consistently, small doses to kind of just kick that forward and, and add a little bit of testosterone, add a little bit of adrenaline, get those hormones moving in the body so we're able to increase the lean muscle mass. This doesn't mean we want them to look like Arnold. When we do that, that allows us to see better results in our training. And in, in my opinion, it allows the athlete to say, man, if I'm going to only go out for two or three runs a week, I need to make them count. I need to be fast. Now they're thinking technique. I need to learn how to run better. I don't just want to go out and put the miles in. I need to learn how to run like a kangaroo or a cheetah. So that's kind of where I'm looking at it. And, and this is a constant battle that I have with my triathletes. And I'll be completely honest, Michael, as, as I always am, most of the triathletes I take now I go through a very strict vetting process. So I do not carry a high level or high number, but I, I carry athletes at high levels. So with my iron, uh, half Ironman right now, we had a big shift. Her previous coach was doing a lot of endurance work. She came to me initially for strength training and, and realized like, wow, there's a lot more to this that I can do with my, my on bike run and swim. And we shifted. We went almost completely bike. We did enough running, small amounts throughout the, the week to keep her focused on technique. And when she sent me her assessment videos of her running, Michael, it looked like she was in quickstand, sinking into the ground. And this is an accomplished uh, half Ironman. I mean, she's really done a good amount as well as Ironman, uh, sorry, not Ironman, uh, Olympic. And the thing is that 
when you look at an athlete, we have to remember that the tissue qualities, the amount of, of, of force that they're able to put out, as well as the joint position and their breathing patterns are, are the main platform we're building that athlete on, right? And then we have the mental capacity and the mental abilities, which we'll, you know, hopefully we can get into. But as you notice with the course, I put that early because nobody talks about that. We're so focused on the body, but we also have to think about the mind. When you shift the expectations of an athlete from just going out and putting in the miles, and I've never been someone, I, my first ever Ironman that I worked with, he loved running long. So he's the only exception I've ever had who's run more than 23 miles before the Ironman. And he did 25 and a half, I think. It was an accident. He was supposed to do 24 and his Garmin uh, looped or something. I don't know. I've never been a big mileage person, but when it comes to training, I am big on, okay, we do need an aerobic base. That's what our sport is, but we also need to teach you how to be fast. So this, uh, half Ironman and, and Olympic triathlete I'm working with right now, her FTP, like her previous coach did a lot for her. She she's where she is now because of what they did. It upset me though. And this is a theme I see in, in triathlon coaching. Everybody goes too long uh, too long for too long, in my opinion. The amount of work that she had done at Threshold, at VO2 Max, at, uh, at it, especially the ATP CP energy system was next to nil. And her functional threshold power had fallen almost 30% in the four and a half, five years she was with this coach. We've brought it back up. She's now as fast functional threshold level as she was before. Now, we're just getting into the point in her training where we're, we're doing the, the inside testing to look at her metabolic energy systems. When we first started, it wasn't worthwhile having her go for that service because they were so abused. It was so endurance, endurance, endurance. We have to take a step back and, and look at ourselves as athletes, especially in the endurance realm. Yes, you need to be able to go longer, but there are two things that need to happen. Number one is you have to remember that the, the, pillars of athletic progression are fourfold. One is metabolic, second is hormonal, third is cardiorespiratory, and the fourth one is neuromuscular. And it doesn't just mean getting in your sport and slogging down the road for, you know, a slow run. I don't believe that you should get older or as you get older, you should get slower. And Gene Dykes, who is 71, he just bested his Boston time uh, two days ago by 18 minutes or just under 18 minutes. He ran it last year at 316.20 and he just did 258.50 this year. Now, I don't know what his strength training program is, if, if it, at all, but I'm just using that more to prove the point of a lot of us think as I get older, I can get slower. It's okay. It's part of the process. It shouldn't be. Strength training. Yeah, that, that, that was a very recent episode that you may have listened to actually that we had as well on on aging and uh, and how to still be able to perform at uh, when when you're you're getting up to up to uh, your 40s or 50s or 60s or 70s even so so that was a, a good related related episode but sorry yeah. to interrupt there you can finish your your tra train of thought no no that's actually where I was going I was going to say as you spoke about in one of your previous uh, um, lessons that's that's pretty much one of the things that that we're looking for is we we shouldn't be shutting down and going backwards and that that was one of the things that I think that a lot of people misunderstand. But I'm bringing this back full circle. Had we said that these athletes, this couple was in their early 30s, I would dial back the strength training. For the female, I would be talking about, let's say, two and a half to three and a half hours a week in base, and then two to two and a half hours in build one. Uh, and then build two, it would depend significantly on what her weakest leg is. If it was the run, 
I'd probably dial up the strength training a little bit more, but make it more uh, Olympic lifting. So breaking up the the hang high clean or um, uh, the drop clean, uh, not necessarily snatches. I'm not such a big fan of of snatches or, or Olympic overhead work for many of the triathletes the first year or two we do strength training, although learning the technique is important um, just because of the prevalence of shoulder injuries and, and upper rib cage issues like upper back uh, kyphosis or rounding forward to the shoulders. But if we shift the athlete's age, that completely changes the approach. But at that age of 40, we, we're working with a small time window here, and we really need to try and increase the lean muscle mass as much as possible. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is three things. Number one is the strength training really is that important. If you're around the age of 40, plus or minus three or four years, now is the time. Don't keep putting it off. I'm thinking long game. I always play long game. I've, I, that's how I was raised and, and born into training. When I started professional um, powerlifting, or not professional, competing in the professional powerlifting meets at the amateur level, seeing these professional guys, I learned at a young age, kid, you're going to be really good, but you ha- don't think about next year. Think about two years from now. That's what you're aiming for. Next year is just a test for where you'll be in two years. And a lot of us as athletes, and especially nowadays, Michael, I think I think you've seen this enough, uh, some of your your previous episodes and uh, have kind of talked about this, but don't think about next month. Think about where do you need to be in three months? And when you think about three months, where do you need to be on race day? And that's what's driving your your changes. Not, you know, oh, I, I, I went out and I was supposed to PR at Boston this past weekend, but I had an awful day. The first mile I knew it was going to be awful, but I pushed anyhow and I want to do it again in, in five weeks. No, let's take a step back and see what didn't work. Let's see what we can improve upon. And as triathletes, we tend to get stuck in this mindset of more is more is more is more is more is more. And it's not. Training is effective and efficient when the least amount of work that you need to do in order to see the desired result is done. It's not going out and saying, oh, I did 18 or 24 hours last week. Let's take you off of the track. Let's take you off of the trainer. Let's get you out of the water. Let's make you function better for about two and a half to four hours a week, depending on your age and your your goals, let's work in the strength training room, but we're not talking lunges and squats and leg press and hamstring curls. We're talking about breathing exercise, uh, sphinx breathing, all fours breathing, teaching you how to breathe, crocodile breathing, getting you better shoulder function by doing the small things, not just external rotation, but getting your shoulder blade to move properly, getting you to be able to lock your rib cage and pelvis together, uh, protecting your lower back, protecting your knees. That's what we're really after with the strength training. And that's how we make you a better triathlete. And that's why that time, it's not the total time, it's the quality of work you have within. So so let's go into the, the nitty gritty of those uh, objectives and the content of, of the sessions that you do in the weight room, or even if it's uh, potentially home-based even for, for some of the more time crunch athletes. But what would, be, what would be the objectives? And I guess that this is also going to depend, but you can talk about a few different scenarios and, uh, and then how would we achieve those in terms of how to select what to work on, whether it's breathing, lifting, and, and how to structure the workouts. Absolutely. Uh, that's a really good question. And you already said it depends. So we'll always pre- prevail. Every, every answer is, uh, it depends first, and then we'll go down, <laughs> go down the rabbit hole a little bit. Um, the types and, and objectives of strength and conditioning sessions are going to be about three for triathletes. Uh, number one is going to be posture. We want to improve your posture, and that's going to happen with the consistency over time. And this is where the dynamic warm-up is important. The dynamic warm-up 
excuse me, it's going to be usually between four and eight exercises that we're going to do consistently. And that's between four and six days a week. I always schedule in one day of complete rest a day. And when I say rest, I don't mean, oh, well, I went hiking with the kids for four hours. Like stay at home, play video games, do something sedentary, be lazy bum. That's being an athlete, you know, be an athlete 24 seven. So number one is the dynamic warm up. That's where we're going to really focus in on the breathing patterns. Uh, crocodile breathing is one of my favorite uh, for more intermediate and advanced athletes uh, for strength training or those who have good posture and shoulder mobility. We'll do something called hands over head breathing. Uh, there's a couple other exercises, uh, sphinx breathing. That's usually number one for me. Now, the reason I put that number one for triathletes is twofold. This is an exercise and breathing. You can teach yourself how to do 360 breathing. It helps you lower your stress levels. It uh, gets you into the habit of having this as your first exercise, which means on race day, when you're setting yourself up or waiting for the starting gun, you can still do your breathing exercises. I don't recommend laying down on the floor, but you can practice a 360 degree breath. And we've now trained for you being on the start line let's say 250 days of that year leading up to it because the breathing exercise is familiar. Uh, number two after that would be some type of dynamic movement, uh, high knee skips, Frankensteins, uh, where you're, you know, straight leg shuffles, A marches, B marches, Statue of Liberties, things that are going to open up the body and get it ready for movement. From there, the dynamic exercises should no longer take no longer than about five minutes in total, but they should get your heart rate up, your core temperature up, get you breathing a little bit uh, harder, get your you sweating just a little bit. Then we'll go into what some would call prehab or rehab exercises that are targeted for that specific session. So let's say for our 12 hour a week female athlete at home, uh, we would have her do, let's say crocodile breathing for uh, one set of five breaths. We would go through straight knee shuffle, uh, straight leg shuffles, also called Frankenstein. Steins, uh, a move called Statue of Liberties, where you're kind of doing a quad stretch and the opposite hand comes up overhead to get the shoulder warmed up. And then we'll do something, let's say it's a upper body day. So we'll do what's called inchworms, where you start from a standing position, put your hands down to the floor as best as you can, walk yourself as long as you can out, uh, bracing the stomach, protecting the back, and then walking your butt up in the air, kind of like a down dog, but moving. Uh, from there, we would go into the specific exercises for that athlete. So let's say the female athlete, uh, intermediate, 12 hours a week, um, has some kids at home. The kids are at daycare. She has a pair of kettlebells at home, uh, 24 kilos and 12 kilos. Uh, she's fairly strong. She's been strength training, let's say, for three years. We're going to start her off first with a power exercise, kettlebell swings. We're going to allow her to do five sets of eight kettlebell swings. Uh, now, let's just say that those eight are the first two or three are kind of her getting into the groove, feeling the shift of weight on her floor, on the floor, uh, in her foot. The five, so number uh, four through eight are actually her working set. And this is fairly advanced. We're taking two or three to kind of get the hang of things. And then we're really pushing the, the feet into the floor, snapping the hips through, allowing the glutes to work, bracing the, the stomach and getting her that explosive triple extension. That would be her first exercise uh, paired with some type of opening exercise, like a lat stretch. Uh, where we're getting her to work on a area on her upper body that tends to be a little bit more tight. 
Uh, from that power exercise, we would move into her biggest weakness. So let's say for her, it's a pulling motion. Her shoulder blade tends to round up towards her ear. We would do something like maybe uh, a banded row with a door anchor, uh, which are relatively cheap on Amazon nowadays. I must, I must say, like you can get a band and a door anchor for under. 20 bucks, um, relatively little bit of space, don't need much uh, in the way of anything aside from a door that closes and locks. So we would do, let's say, two sets of 10 with a pause or a squeeze at the back, uh, making sure she's working on her posture. Again, feeling the connection with the ground with her feet, uh, feeling the hips, specifically the glutes and the hamstrings engage. Uh, and she would pair that with, let's do inchworms again as an exercise. So she would do two sets of 10 with a one second pause of band rows, and then two sets of eight inchworms focusing again on her breath whenever her hips are high in the air. Her B exercise would be essentially, or I'm sorry, her C exercise, A are kettlebells and lap stretch. Uh, B are going to be the rows and the inchworms. And then C would be some type of dynamic movement. I would do something like a side lunge with the hands overhead. So we're teaching her to move laterally, getting the groin to stay nice and long and strong, activating the glutes, getting her mid back fired, uh, lifting the hands up overhead while learning how to maintain posture with her obliques and her glutes working together. Uh, and after that, we would choose something that she likes to do. Maybe she likes to do squats or lunges. For a C2, that's a good place to put it in. So let's say we'll do three sets of eight each side with hands overhead lunge and three sets of 15 of goblet squats. Uh, we've now given the athlete a fantastic program, allowed her to address some issues that she may have in her movements uh, by incorporating nice dynamic movement uh, in the warm-up, as well as giving her two or three different special exercises with specific cues of interacting with the ground, turning on the hamstrings, activating the glutes, maintaining a nice high posture, and, and feeling that mind-muscle connection. And we've now given her an awesome workout that she can do at home two days a week. And if she wanted to or she had time, we would do two days in the gym where maybe she's doing deadlifts. I like sumo deadlifts for my triathletes because it's a posture based. So her A1 in the gym would be a sumo deadlift off of blocks. Now here's the thing. And and uh, a lot of people, Michael, it's kind of like, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? A lot of people will say, you know, deadlifts, they have to be off the floor. They can't be with the hex bar. Who are you, man? Come on. It depends. A deadlift is a hinge motion. Most of us don't need to lift heavy things off of the floor. We're triathletes. We're not powerlifters. Why are we trying to put ourselves into positions where we can get injured? Put the weights up two to four centimeters or four to six inches, as high as you need to, that you can maintain a hinging pattern with good posture and get the movement from the right places. That's all it's about. So for her, let's say sumo deadlifts off of uh, blocks, which would be about six and a half to 10 centimeters. So she's lifting that bar off the floor. She has her feet out towards the side in an in a, um, open pattern. Think about a sumo wrestler going nice and wide. Uh, and then she would have to fight with the bar essentially using her shoulder blades, her uh, muscles of her back, her erector spinae to keep her nice and upright, using her hips and her glutes to lift up, bringing that bar close to her body. Now, this is a non-sport specific movement, right? When are you ever going to have your feet all the way out to the side and then have to hinge on the bike or the run? Never. But that's Never. the point. That's the point, right? Um, so that's kind of where we can go. How much further do you want to go down the, the rabbit hole? Do you want me to continue with the gym-based? Well, or? Yeah, let's let's continue with the gym-based and, uh, and then summarize quickly the duration of those 
example sessions and and summarize as well the the sets and the reps uh, or examples here in this case and, and how to think about sets and reps so more the, the programming details for for these types of sessions okay um so for a2 so we have the sumo deadlift says one and a2 would be something like sideline windmill or a bretzel. Uh, this is a rotation. So the legs are going one way, the upper body is going the opposite. Uh, if you follow anatomy trains uh, by Thomas Myers, he talks about the fascial systems in the body. There's a uh, several meridians or muscles that are interconnected by the fascial system, which is kind of like a spider web that runs throughout the body, if you will. Um, which is also why exploratory surgery is a bad idea for most people, unless it's life or death, in which case go for it. Um, because the, the scar tissue interrupts the fascia. Um, so A1, A2, we have sumo deadlifts off of blocks is A1. Uh, A2 would be if we're doing, uh, the kettlebell swings at four sets of eight, which would be this time of year, which is build one. Um, let's say the sumo deadlifts are three to four sets of four to six. And the rep ranges right now are strength and hypertrophy, but we want her with speed. So one to uh, one second to come up, so a little bit of explosiveness, and two seconds to come down. So we're training her muscles and her body for speed. Now, this is going to mean that the weight is going to depend on how fatigued her central nervous system is from her in-sport training. There's a great app that I like to use called CNS Tap Test. I think it's like six bucks or something in the Google Play Store. Uh, it's a simple little thing. All you have is 10 seconds. Uh, you place the phone on a table. You put your fingers flat on the, on the table and you tap with your index finger on the right side. Uh, for 10 seconds, index finger for the left side, and it, it maps over time uh, what your number is. So you can see, you know, sometimes you walk in the gym and you say, man, I'm really tired. And you'll have a, a tap test of 82, which for me is really good. I'm like, whoa, man, I didn't expect that. And then the days I feel really good, I go in and I get a tap test of, you know, 60. I'm like, where the heck did that come from? This is the central nervous system's ability to fire. So it helps you kind of manage, you know, okay, my CNS tap test was lower today. So in that four to six range, I'm going to do six because I'm going to bring the weight down. Um, and if you feel not so great after the third set, great. You've done your three sets of six. And that's why it's a, a rep range. And we'll get into that in a second. Um, so A1, sumo deadlift. A2 is bretzel or sideline windmill, which is a, a rotary stability kind of, a uh, rotational exercise rather, not stability. It's teaching you to coordinate those uh, movements and use those muscles. B1 would generally be some type of uh, a, a push uh, at this point in the year. And again, two sets. So it might be push-ups. It might be uh, dumbbell bench press. I'm not a big fan of barbell bench press in season for triathletes, just because I think it is important for us to have a, a good connection and awareness of where our elbows and shoulders are in our sport. So it can really expose, like if we start to see the dumbbells tracking differently, uh, when we start to ramp up our speed work in the pool, that tells us something's off. And we want to take the paddles out, maybe take the pull buoy out and go back and look at the technique in the water. Or it may mean that the athlete is just carrying a tightness that we missed. Um, so we'll do dumbbell incline bench press, let's say three sets of eight, uh, still in the hypertrophy, quote unquote, uh, range. And then along with that, we would do some type of uh, shoulder exercise. So maybe we'll do uh, wall scapular slides with the foam roller, getting the lower and mid traps to fire with the serratus anterior, small muscles on the outside of the rib cage um, that allow us to teach the shoulder blade how to move. Um, C1 and C2 
two would be really dependent on the athlete. So let's say that her main focus is the bike. We would then do something like a, a max effort front plank for uh, five seconds. And I'm, I know that a lot of people ask, how can you max effort a front plank? Well, what that is, it's simply the uh, RKC version of the plank where you fire all of your muscles together, glutes, abs, quads, uh, biceps, triceps, lats, you fire every muscle in the body as hard as you can for three seconds to five seconds. And then you rest on the floor for two to four seconds. And you just do a series of that of three to four. So let's say it would be three sets of five seconds on three seconds off. And then her C2 would be something like a standard side plank. Now, what a lot of people don't realize is the side plank, the top foot is actually meant to be forward. The feet should not be stacked. Um, when Dr. McGill submitted uh, the book or the, the photo, the artist rendered the drawing as, as though the feet were stacked on top of one another. And by the time he saw the proof, they had already printed like something like, you know, a million copies or something. So it was very expensive to bring it back. But the proper side plank should be done with the top foot forward and the bottom leg back. Why is that important? Our transverse abdominis is one, uh, essentially one nerve root. But when it comes to your obliques, the muscles on the side, and they act as part of a hoop uh, a that locks together your rib cage and pelvis. Uh, and this is important. That's where power comes from and where protection for the back comes from, uh, from injury. It keeps it functioning well. When the internal and external oblique, when we want to activate them, there's actually four compartments. There's an upper and lower and there's a medial and lateral or inner and outer, if you will, if you were to split your body in half up and down the, the um, up and down right and left sides. In order to activate all four of these, we actually need to split the feet. And then once you're able to maintain that position uh, for 30 to 45 seconds static, we would look at small rotations, keeping the rib cage and pelvis locked together, allowing you to activate all four compartments. Uh, and that's a very difficult variation of the side plank, and it takes a while to get up there. But if you're looking to go pro, if you want to gain some speed on your run, um, that exercise combined with the sumo deadlifts, the kettlebell swings that this athlete is doing, our, our example, 12-hour-a-week female athlete around the age of 40 with a number of kids at home, this is a great way that we can add speed on your run without doing anything aside from short technique work. Every time you head out on a run, 10 to 15 minutes te technique work, and then going out and doing some speed work and one or two long runs uh, a week. So that's what the gym-based would look like. Heavier weight on the sumo, heavier weight for the upper body, uh, for, for the push, uh, a little bit more dialed in for the the stability exercises or the quote-unquote prehab-rehab, uh, and then something really challenging for the core at the end. Okay, great. And uh, and a couple of follow-up questions on, on that then. First of all, I can see the point of like doing strength training and uh, and the technique based running for a sprint and Olympic distance. What about for those long distance athletes? Uh, would would this change? Let's say that this uh, female still on her twelve hour budget is training for an Ironman. Would would it change at all in how you view how to combine the the run and and strength training? Like, would you still rely on technique and strength training mostly to to basically? Make, get her through the 42 kilometers or, or would you add more running volume? That is a fantastic question. Uh, a really, really good question. Uh, it depends. So her running age, uh, previous injuries, um, let, let's, let's dial into that. Actually, let, let's, let's play that out a little bit, Michael. Uh, okay. What's her, what was her strong sport that brought her into triathlon? Was it run, bike or swim? Let's, let's say running. I think many athletes come from running. At least that's the, 
the sport that she started doing. Okay. And how many years has she been a runner for? Let's call it seven. Okay. Uh, any previous injuries? Minor, but no major, like two weeks off here and there, but nothing major. Okay. Um, make up, uh, let's make up one injury that, that either is recurring or was her big one that she took two weeks off for? A slight IT band issues. Okay. And what is her, what's her, her training like right now? Is she volume based runner or is she a energy system based runner? Well, if, uh, let's, let's say that, let's say that she's uh, coming out of her off season and is starting to work with you. Uh, but in the previous season, so now she's basically a clean slate almost, but before that, uh, perhaps more volume based. And okay. hasn't, hasn't done a lot of strength training, but some, but not a lot. Great question. Okay. And what's her strength training age? Two years, uh, but somewhat inconsistently. Inconsistently as in like May to July or, or May to October? Yeah, or? yeah. So sort of, yeah, winter, winter half year. Okay. So we're going to, we're going to dive right in there. So the two years inconsistently, and this is what most triathletes are doing now, and we have seen studies that show that when, as soon as you take that strength training stimulus away, you lose a lot of those performance uh, gains. If you're a quote unquote standard triathlete right now, where you're doing strength training from November, um, you know, let's say we qualify for Kona or, or you have another fall peak race in September, October. So November until May, your strength training, her training age for strength training is six, uh, six times two is 12 divided by two thirds. So we're going to say she's nine months. And the reason why I do that, uh, is take the total actual training that she did for the, the months that she did. And that means consistent at least twice to three times or more a week of strength training and divide it and take away a third of that is because we've lost those tissue adaptations. When you take that time off, you, you've lost the stiffness and that's what takes forever and why the consistency is important for strength training. And this is where a lot of cyclists get hurt is they can lift a lot of weight with their legs. So they increase their weight from, you know, let's say 60% of their estimated one rep max. And by the way, no one ever should be doing a one rep max unless you're a power lifter uh, or an Olympic weightlifter. You have no need to do it. The risk of injury is too high. Um, so it's always estimated 1RM. And for those of you at home listening, I strongly recommend if you're just starting in strength training, uh, you can test, quote unquote, your 1RM or find your number by doing a, a set of 8 to 10 repetitions with a submax weight. And that's going to be far safer because uh, the connective tissue is white. It takes much longer to repair. And that's why those nine months uh, is her training age for strength training, because those tissues have lost that quality. So her training age for strength is nine months. She's been running for seven years, uh, age 40. Uh, we'll stick with that. Same background, slight ITB issues off and on. Uh, she's just coming from the off season, starting work with strength, and she's a volume-based runner. For her, at nine months of, of training age for strength training, I would have her do 30-minute strength training sessions three to five times a week mostly home-based, working with kettlebells, unless she really had a connection to the gym, in which case we would do three days a week at one hour in the gym uh, and a half hour at home another two days. The run volume-based, what we would try and focus on 
is the primary energy system. So she's a seven years runner, which means I think she's a great candidate for the inside testing for us to take a look at and see where is she metabolically, what she's capable of, of doing. Uh, obviously with running, I think at this point, it'll still have to be a, uh, a lactate based test. So that might be a little bit of an obstacle, um, because we want specifics, but we would work on in the weight room with the ITB issues. First, we would start with anatomical adaptation, six to eight weeks, uh, low to no weight, getting her to move better. Uh, we would want to go through metabolic stress and that's one of the ways we can grow muscles. There's metabolic, mechanical, and time under tension essentially, uh, are the three primary. And some people will tell me and have, emailed me uh, from other interviews, yo, time under tension isn't really, there's metabolic, mechanical, and then they go down the scientific, but let's keep it simple. Um, so if you disagree, I, yes, I know. Uh, but metabolic and mechanical are two of the ways we can overload the muscle and see strength growth and muscle size growth. Now, muscle size growth isn't necessarily a bad thing. The ITB is the insertion for the glute max into the knee, which essentially keeps the knee from falling in. And that's the main job of the glute max is to help control that knee from diving in every time you take a step or you're running. So as a runner, that slight ITB issue tells us that she has most likely a gluteal issue and almost definitely a rotary stability issue. That means a lot of her strength training stuff in the gym, we're not going to get super fancy. We're not going to get onto the, the bozu ball or the, the muffin top and try and do all this balance stuff. Let's teach you how to interact with the ground. We'll do an exercise. Uh, I'm actually going to post on Instagram uh, tomorrow, a video that I have of one of my athletes uh, doing uh, toes, toe yoga, and she's learning how to interact with the ground. And it's hard. We would start there and give her basic exercises. Again, like we said at the beginning, keep it simple, stupid. So we would do deadlifts to work on our posterior chain. The squatting would be limited. We would look for time under tension. So I'm, I'm a big fan of tempo goblet squats for triathletes. Two seconds down, one second pause, maintaining tension, two seconds to come up, one second pause, next repetition. Uh, and then we would look at building her and teaching her how to pull properly, a little bit of pushing. But when she's doing her pushing, we want to look and see how is she positioning her body? Is she using her glutes to help stabilize her body or is she letting her feet move here and fro and she's really relying on uh, the deep abdominal muscles to do jobs that they can't do without the help of the bigger muscles. So even though she's volume-based, there's still, if we, if we play it out, that's about four to five hours of strength training a week, but that would only be for the first six to 10 weeks of her, her training program. After that, we'd want to get the body back into what it's used to. And the reason the inside testing is important is because we can actually decrease her volume and dial in even more to what her metabolic needs are. So we can make her a more efficient athlete runner by understanding what her energy systems need and focusing the training on that while we're shoring up and giving her some strength in the weight room. Um, does that kind of answer answer that question, or do you want me to keep uh, keep diving down? Yeah, yeah, it does. Let's let's dig a little bit deeper because I've, I would estimate that twenty percent of the listeners now are are really on the edge of their seats and and they're urging me to ask you. Well, how do you use the inside information? Because I got a lot of good response from that episode, but that was mostly cycling specific. But in this case, uh, with the, with the running, although the uh, the I guess the the background, the, the mechanism, the theory is the same, but how would you use that information? Let's say that you go and, and do the lactate inside testing for running based for this athlete. And depending on what you find, how do you then use that for her to combine the run training and the strength training? 
So I would use it almost exclusively for the, the run training only right now because I'm still learning and trying to figure out how to use the inside to match the strength training. The reason we would do that is because we would look at how can we make her remember the four pillars of athletic progression we mentioned before, metabolic, hormonal, cardiorespiratory, neuromuscular. We can work on the metabolic and neuromuscular uh, and, and still keep her with comfortable volumes because one of the last things that we want to do is, is pull away what we're used to or accustomed to. So if she's a volume-based runner, the, the mental, we're trying now to build strength and do something completely new for her and take away something she's familiar and may even be a big part of her identity. So we would use the inside testing to figure out, okay, if we're going to continue to do the volume-based, what type of efforts do you actually need? What energy system do we need to focus on? Is your VLA 0.3 or is it 0.8? And then we would use the running uh, training to help uh, foster the metabolic adaptations that she's running. So even though she's doing lower volume, we're dialing in more to what her metabolic needs are while we're strengthening her. So that's how I I would use that testing. What would you want her VLA max to be for running for if she's now training for an Ironman in this scenario? But it's so personal. I mean, uh, let, let me let me bounce that back to you. Like, what would you expect? What it, let's say her VLA right now is uh, 0.4. Let's say it's 0.4. Yeah, I I really don't know with running. Uh, to be honest, with cycling, I would try to get it to to 0.3 uh, definitely. Uh, but with running, I since I don't do, I, I don't really do that testing. I have experimented with it uh, remotely, but I my athletes are all remotely remote, so I have to send them to facilities elsewhere to actually do the testing just following the protocol. So I really don't have a big enough database to be able to say for sure uh, what what I would want that to be. I, I don't really feel confident in, in answering that that question, uh, to be honest. Yeah, and I'm, I'm there with you uh, for two reasons. One, I'm, I'm just uh, getting started with inside, but looking at the, the history and looking at the, the, the research articles we see, it's so individual. We know that we want it to be as low as possible, right? because we want it to be, it's an aerobic sport. So we'd want to try and stay out of there. But what if she has a fantastic ability to deal with lactate and still perform? Like, are we still doing a service by trying to drive it as low as possible? Uh, that's the question. I mean, that's, that's how I'm looking at it right now. My idea of using the inside testing uh, for the running, because it has to be in a lab, we know that the values are going to be uh, good, uh, accurate and precise, as long as everything's been uh um, tested regularly as far as the measuring instruments, and we can actually show her progress with the lower volume. That that's my that's my my reason for putting her into that. Yeah, yeah. does that make sense? That, that makes that makes t- total sense. And to add to that, regardless of even though I might not know what I would like her ideal running VLA max to be, uh, I would say that if I see that she's uh, she's somebody who who has a fairly high VLA max, and that might even be like moderately high if she's training for an Ironman because we want it to be low so let's say it's 0.5 that would mean that I would probably limit the explosive strength training uh, when at least during the last I don't know two three months before before the Ironman when we really want to focus on focus on getting that down and uh, to not stimulate that uh, glycolytic uh, contribution to to the energy system for for that kind of a long race That, that would be I guess what, how I would use it, like regardless of what I don't know what I want it to be ideally, but I know that if I don't want to, uh, if I want to stimulate a decrease in it, then I perhaps want to limit or completely eliminate the explosive strength training. 
Yep. And that's exactly why, you know, this is six to 10 weeks in the initial is because we know we have to go through that energy system in these initial anatomical adaptations in the hypertrophy uh, phase. Uh, but yeah, and pretty much, and this is where triathletes and cyclists get it wrong. They go into the season and, and you know, I'll, maybe I'll be proved wrong. Maybe we'll be wrong and we'll sit here over a coffee or, or a, a scotch in five years, Michael, and we'll have a good laugh over this episode. Wow. We didn't know what we didn't know. But, um, you know, a lot of cyclists and triathletes go to high repetitions, low weights during the season, right? But what about just lifting heavy things twice or three times? So you're, yes, you're using that energy system a little bit, but we see some of the top teams right now, even the day of, or the day before the time trial and a a grand tour going in and doing sets of two or three heavy lifts. Think about that. And and heavy's relative. It doesn't necessarily mean it's their one RM of all time, uh, but they're relative to where they are in the season. They're going into the gym uh, a couple hours before their time trial. And they're doing uh, sets of two or three. So they're just touching on that energy system, but not putting so much stress on it. But it's just enough to rev up the neurological system, uh, allowing them to see the results that they want out on the bike. Um, So that would be, you know, the way that I would look is, yeah, we're going to stay out of that energy system. Yeah, maybe it is sets of one with plenty of rest in between. But instead of going to just aerobic-based training, which really should be sets of 25 to 80. Uh, if anybody's interested out there, if you're a real nerd and you really want to dive into this, uh, super training by Verkashansky and Sif is pretty much the ultimate uh, read on strength and conditioning uh, for, for actual strength training. And a lot of us are doing sets of 10 to 15 and saying, oh, I'm, I'm doing endurance work. Well, actually that's hypertrophy. So the thing that you don't want to get is exactly what you're programming your body for. Um, but during the season, as we get closer... I lean towards more heavy weights just once a week. So maybe we are touching on that glycolytic system. But again, she's an intermediate. When we get into the professional and advanced triathletes, then that energy system work becomes so much more important because they're so sensitive to everything we do to them uh, and for them. We really need to play our cards exactly right. Whereas the amateurs like you and I, Michael, um, me more so than you, I would say, we don't have as much of a, a training history, a training age, which means we can get away with screwing up you know, 15% of the time, whereas the professionals, and this is, I think, why inside is a, a one to 2% error margin. It has to be precise. You, you have to be spot on for these guys. Yeah. And, 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 and to be clear, uh, I wasn't talking about eliminating heavy strength training and, and maybe I should have, uh, should rephrase it in some better way. And you probably know the terminology a bit better than myself. But, uh, what, what I would consider doing is to do the heavy strength training, but, but do, if you do sets of five and especially you don't, you take your time uh, with those lifts, at least the way that I would understand it is that you, you would be using creatine phosphate, uh, the CP system mostly, and not mm-hmm. glycolytic system. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't be a stranger to doing that throughout the season at all, but uh, more so avoiding, uh, I guess, when you're doing those explosive lifts, and uh, especially if you don't take a pause between them, then you are working for more, I guess, con- continuous durations of time in some way and then you are going to be producing uh producing lactate through through glycolysis because you're essentially doing sort of a an interval that is in the region of of 10 to 60 seconds or something like that whereas strength training would be just repetitions that are two seconds like heavy strength training would be repetitions that are very short and you pause between them so so you don't get that build up of, of lactate 
if if that makes sense. So so that would be how I would uh, how I would use strength training. And I have had a lot of interactions with people because I do this the inside testing remotely with uh, triathletes on the cycling part because we can do the critical power testing. And this is a common question that I get. And what I typically do, what I recommend, and what I do for the athletes that I coach individually as well is that. Uh, I'm not afraid to have the heavy strength training in there, but the kind of heavy strength training that is going to rely very much on the uh, just the neuromuscular system and, and the CP system rather than uh, glycolysis. Yeah, and that's that's such an important point that you just made. I mean, that's and you can still do explosive stuff. It's just you're doing this is where what Olympic lifters do is they do sets of two or three, and the the movements are so explosive and fast they're done in under ten seconds for most most yeah, of the time, makes- um, and then. And then they sit around and people are like, are they, they're lifting heavy things, but they sit around on their, well, now it's their cell phones, but they used to sit around, you know, talking, laughing, doing other stuff. And then, oh, well, it's been about six minutes. I'll go do my set, do two lift heavy things <laughs> and sit back down. The rest periods, it's not just the production, but it's the clearing of, um, and we can go down that rabbit hole if you want, but that is an excellent point. Um, so it doesn't just have to be heavy. Um, it has to be sensitive to the energy systems that are doing the primary work there along with the neuromuscular system. I hope that you enjoyed that episode as much as I enjoyed talking to Menachem. You can find the show notes as usual on thattriathlonshow.com. And for this episode in particular, I think that you should go there because Menachem was kind enough to put together a big list of his most recommended resources, YouTube videos, uh, mostly the most important YouTube videos, essentially, that uh, that he could think of that he's created for for endurance athletes, for triathletes to get started with strength training, what sort of things you should consider, what are the most beneficial things that you could be doing at this point in time. So there's a big list and that's only on the show notes page uh, on uh, that triathlonshow.com, clicking through to this particular episode, number 182, of course. And uh, also links to all past strength training episodes that we've had on the podcast. Uh, that's uh, linked in the description and on the show notes page. You can also go directly to the menu bar on scientifictriathlon.com. Just uh, go to more and then popular topics and strength training. And through that page, you will see all the strength training episodes that have been done here on the podcast. Uh, The the one that I would steer you to is definitely episode number 81, the triathlete strength training formula. And uh, that is uh, going into the nitty gritty of the evidence base of strength training and, and how it can benefit performance for triathletes and endurance athletes. Finally, make sure that you go and check out Menachem on his website, the Human Vortex Training website and the YouTube channel, and check out his podcast, the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast. I actually just did an interview just an hour or so before recording this and uh, that will be out in sometime in june and in that interview we go into uh, basically building building your aerobic engine building your engine as an endurance athlete and uh, it's a long uh, long interview so uh, i think that uh, you'll find it very interesting and and uh, yeah make sure that you stay subscribed to that podcast as well again it's called strong savvy cyclist and triathlete podcast and uh, then you will hear me appear as a guest on that podcast sooner rather than later. So check that out. Next episode, of course, will be part two of this interview. So stay tuned for that. Again, that's coming out next Monday. Uh, subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss that. And if you have been a listener for a long time, consider leaving a rating and a review. I just checked the stats and globally, uh, that triathlon show has 390 ratings 
almost all of them are five star ratings and we have 211 reviews so written reviews and uh, it really is great to leave a rating in itself but uh, if you also leave a review like 211 of you have done that's even better because the reviews they do seem to go just a bit of a longer way in terms of of increasing the the reach of of the podcast and and making the podcast ranking itunes and uh, whatever podcast app you you might be might be using so please leave us reviews it's uh it's really important that you do that as well and i want to read one and thank you very much here to jp jenkins from the united states who writes the best triathlon podcast five stars i love your podcast it is the only one i listen to every week i have it set to auto download and to notify me when it comes in i love all the guests you have on the show but what I really enjoy is the questions you ask your guests. You take what could be very complicated information and ensure that it is simplified for your listeners so we can all use it to improve our knowledge and performance. Thank you so much for that review. I really appreciate it. And again, if you have been a listener for a long time and you haven't le- yet left a rating and review, consider doing so. It means a lot to me if you can do that. Big thanks, of course, to the sponsors that help keep us going week after week after week. First, we have Roka that you can find on roka.com and check out that link, roka.com forward slash TTS and enter the giveaway to win prizes for up to 2000 US dollars, including an Ironman race entry. And big thanks to Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Take their free online sweat test to get your individual race hydration strategy and use the promo code that triathlon show, all on word, all caps, to get your first box for free. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.